You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Henry Rees Sheridan. On today's show... Unfortunately, we're at a position now where the government's embarking on negotiations that are going to lead to one of two things. Either uh, a bad deal, and that includes the possibility of us leaving the EU without knowing the future relationship with the European Union, or no deal. The Mayor of London calls for a second referendum on Brexit. We ask if he's right and if his party will follow his lead. My guests are Mary Dzhevsky and John Everard. They'll be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee is accused of sexual assault. Australia's Prime Minister calls for a royal commission into the country's elderly care sector. And while time might not be money, we look at why it still has value. This is not a title of value. If you're going to be in print at the moment, if you're going to be seen in a, a Lufthansa lounge, if you're going to be seen you know, on, on the campus at Brown University reading Time magazine, you want to be proud of it. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Henry Rees Sheridan. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the former British diplomat John Everard and Mary Dejewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian. Welcome both of you to the programme. Thanks very much for joining me. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has called for a second referendum on Brexit in an opinion piece published in The Observer yesterday. His voice joins a chorus of people from across the political spectrum calling for a second vote, but it puts him somewhat at odds with his own Labour Party. Uh, Mary, I'll turn to you first. What exactly is Khan saying in this piece? What he's saying is that um, for the good of the country and um, because maybe sentiment has perhaps shifted since the first referendum and because there is such difficulty over the negotiations that we may have no deal at all, um, that for all those reasons, having a second referendum would be, as it were, the best way out. And of course, um, Sadiq Khan, being where he is in the spectrum of the Labour Party, um, thinks and hopes that a second referendum would produce another result. Now, you know, personally, I have huge qualms about having a second referendum because I think once you've had one, then to say, well, you didn't get the result right the first time around, you've got to have another go until you get it right. I think there's all sorts of constitutional problems about that, even in a country which doesn't have a written constitution. John, do you agree with that? Uh Yes, I agree with, uh, with with Mary's analysis of, of Sadiq's article. Uh, I notice he also took the opportunity of laying into the Tory party, indicating that uh, what we're watching is a government more concerned with the political fortunes of Boris Johnson than the fortunes of the nation. Uh, I think if... I read it correctly. He wasn't suggesting so much a second referendum as in a rerun of the first, but he feels that the British people are being forced into a position where the choice will be between no Brexit, uh, a, a Brexit without a deal, and uh, a Brexit with a with a bad deal. And his argument is that the mandate of the referendum simply doesn't carry the government that far, uh, that it ha- doesn't have a mandate uh, to simply charge ahead uh, in the light of the, what, what's happened in the interim, and the people have to be consulted again. I don't think it's so much a question of going back until you get the right answer. I think it's a question of dealing sensibly with all the questions that the first answer produced. Yeah, I, I 
agree with you. I, I read uh, his his argument as being what you've just stated, and I do find it interesting because there's a spectrum of uh, people now calling for a second referendum. They have different reasons. Um, Andy Burnham, who is the uh, mayor of Manchester, uh, wants one only in the case if it looks inevitable that it's going to go to a to a no uh, deal scenario. Uh, Mary, do you think that the justification? matters when it comes to calling for uh, decisions like this? Um, well, on the, on the one hand, it doesn't, um, because the actual principle that's at stake that says we'll have a referendum, then, you know, you can say the same thing about the people who voted, um, especially for Brexit, that they voted for different reasons. Um, and they came to that conclusion. And so you could say that the same applies to a second referendum, that you can have different reasons for it. Um, but it produces the same answer. Um, but I think there's maybe another aspect to this too, which is the, the Labour Party aspect. Um, because all the people um, on the left who are calling for a second referendum are or tend to be towards the centre left, um, who would be disparaged by um, the left of the Labour Party and the Corbynites who are currently increasingly in control. Um, they would be. They have. Um, forged a very um, a rather ambiguous path um, between saying they um, accept the will of the people um, but at the same time they rather disapprove but not to the point of doing anything about it. The centre-left, um, really the Blairites, um, they are absolutely desperate to stay in the European Union or to get a very, very soft Brexit and this is where Sadiq Khan comes from. And this, his article in The Observer, um, his, as it were, coming out in favour of a second referendum, um, puts him at odds, and I think very deliberately at odds, with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party leadership, and could be seen as positioning himself um, as a possible future leader of the Labour Party. Um, I think um, there has been discussion in the past of whether he has those sort of ambitions. Um, I suspect he does. Um, whether he's actually, you know, as they say, leadership material, I'm not completely convinced of this. But I think this should be seen not just um, as a sort of um, altruistic um, step saying this is for the good of the country. I think it should also be seen um, as a political statement and a positioning by Sadiq Khan. John, Sadiq Khan for PM. And if so, how important do you think his generation of politicians' position on the Brexit question, how important is it going to turn out to be when they find themselves in the, part, the stage of their career where they're looking for real power? Positioning himself as a prime ministerial challenger, as a party leader challenger, uh, yes, quite possibly. Uh, is he leadership material? Um, measured against Jeremy Corbyn, almost anybody, frankly, looks good, and Sadiq Khan comes uh, quite respectably. Uh, is his position on Brexit important? Yes, he knows that 48% of of Labour voters you know, voted to remain. Uh, there's a huge constituency there uh, that the, the Labour Party Central at the moment is effectively abandoning. And like any canny politician, uh, Sadiq is tapping into this mine. Younger people voted to remain in the EU disproportionately. Do you think that that's something that politicians who uh, are careerist, uh, sorry, careerist-minded politicians are conscious of 
you know, the demographic of the country is going to change. The voters they're going to be looking to target probably are going to be uh, mostly Remain voters. Do you think in the future people are going to look at people's past positions on the Brexit question? Is it going to become this kind of totemic issue where Korea is going to be uh, made and broken based on on people's past statements on it? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, And I don't know because... um, if you look at the way that the the vote broke down last time, it wasn't. It was clear um, that it went by age groups, but it wasn't quite as clear um, as the advocates of Remain say. And you also can't necessarily rely on the people who voted Remain, say, in what are the, the 1830 group, um, where there was a very clear majority for Remain. You can't absolutely guarantee that they're going to hold that position right the way through their working lives, as it were. It may be that um, they change and that, you know, if, if, if you think... Of when the the previous UK referendum was held, it was 1975, um, which was I mean simply confirming the position of the UK in the European Union, that very many of those people have to be the people who voted against because they're now of that age where the vote was so very strongly Brexit in the in, in the older population. Um, but I think the other consideration, which is um, less age group than um, geographic behind what Sadiq Khan was saying, is that vast majority of London voters voted to remain. And that's the constituency that he cur- currently represents as mayor of London. So I think for him to come out so strongly... Um, um, in favour of a second referendum um, means that on the one, he, he is very conscious um, coming up to perhaps elections when he wants to run again for mayor that he can't afford to be ambiguous on this subject. John, the final question to you. Actually, it would be good to get both of your opinions on this. A lot of people thought that the question of membership to the European Union should never have been put to referendum in the first place. Um, I personally think that this is the case. I think that it's it's a, a vote on an extremely knotty policy issue that was quite predictably misinterpreted by people as a vote on on the set of principles. Does one's position uh, position excuse me on, on that? So, if you think that it should never have been a referendum in the first place, should that influence your position on whether there should be a second referendum? And if so, how? Well. Yes, if you don't think there should have been a referendum in the first place, then it's a little hard to argue that if you do like one referendum, you'd nevertheless like two. Uh, you know, you either you either approve a referenda as policy instruments or you don't. Um, if the uh, uh, and I, I think a lot of people who supported the idea of a referendum uh, before it happened have had cause to think since. We now know uh, that all the referendums always are a blunt instrument, but the amount of noise in the system was almost deafening. People were voting for all kinds of strange reasons. And of course, the big danger is that if there is a second referendum, that we'll get the same distortions again. Mary? I'm not um, absolutely opposed to referendums, though I I understand all the problems with them. I think there was an enormous flaw in this particular referendum, which was that there were no safeguards built into the process. There was nothing like, for instance, in most countries where you you do have referendums um, and they are um, on aspects... um, 
things that will change the constitution, then you have to have a, you have to have a minimum turnout. You have to have a minimum um, difference between the the fors and the against, and you have to have you have to have a, the margin of victory, um, and you have to reach a certain threshold. Often, you know, two thirds is often what you have to have, whether it's in an upper chamber or whether it's via a popular vote. Um, and I think this was there was a huge problem with this, and it was it was in fact. An incredible political oversight not to have those safeguards built in. And when I, I actually asked why they weren't built in, and I was told that in the debate in the in, in the Lords on the ref, or on the referendum bill, um, that some people brought up that question, and they were basically shouted down. Insofar as people get shouted down in the House of Lords, um, and accused of um, making those um, making those. Remarks for with the ulterior motive of wanting to make the uh, referendum ineffective and load it um, against a, a vote to leave. Um, there was also, to my mind, the slightly better argument that said that because there wasn't um, there weren't those safeguards built into the 1975 referendum, um, that they shouldn't be built into to, to, to the new one. But I think it was an absolutely fatal mistake. We're going to stick... Sorry, John. The reason that the safeguards weren't built in was purely political. David Cameron was convinced he was going to win the referendum. He held it only so as to silence the Brexiteers in his party. This was an attempt at a political excision. And he calculated that if he built the safeguards in, that the Brexiteers, who he thought were going to lose this referendum, would not be quieted. They would simply say that you cheated and we want to go again. On that note, as I was saying, we're going to stick with the topic of contentious votes now. But we're going to head to the US, where an already fraught Supreme Court confirmation process has just been made even more contentious. A woman has come forward to accuse Donald Trump's nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, of sexually assaulting her when they were both teenagers. The Judiciary Committee is due to vote on Thursday on whether to submit Mr Kavanaugh's nomination to a full vote in the Senate. Uh, Mary, this complicates matters somewhat, doesn't it? What's the reaction been? It complicates matters hugely because, of course, this particular offence, these particular accusations come at a time when the whole Me Too movement in the US is in the ascendant and it's very difficult politically um, for anybody to ignore that angle um, by finding somebody who's levelling this particular allegation um, this makes it th- th- this complicates things way beyond what it would have been there are all sorts of other things which have been brought against um, against Kavanaugh um, all sorts of things about sort of misconduct, um, dodgy deals, those, the, those sort of things in the past but this particular one creates big problems for the vote especially for the um, female members of, of, of who will be voting. There are unavoidable historical uh, echoes uh, of Anita Hill, uh, who yeah. accused Clarence Thomas of sexual assault during his confirmation hearing. As you've mentioned, the context is unrecognisable uh, now compared to then. Uh, John, how do you think things are going to play out differently this time? I think that, well, first we have the Me Too movement as background, as, as Mary has rightly pointed out. But also, I think there's much more caution now uh, in the nominee, uh, nomination process uh, than there was uh, back uh, you know, in, in, at the time of Anita Hill. I 
hope that what happens is that the vote is paused. I think this, uh, these accusations are sufficiently serious that they do merit a thorough investigation. I mean, I'm not saying that the, the allegations are, are true or that they are accurate. There are all kinds of holes uh, in what is being said. But I think it is in everyone's interest that neutral people are encouraged to dig right down and get to the bottom of what happened or what didn't happen. If, uh, indeed, uh, Kavanaugh did, when he was drunk and 17, uh, do something completely stupid, then uh, the, the Judicial Committee and, indeed, the Senate uh, will want to take this into account. If it's found that he wasn't so accused, at least then he has his name clear uh, for the several decades that he's likely to sit on that bench. I mean, I sort of agree that the vote should be postponed, but I also have huge misgivings um, about anybody's career. I mean, even even somebody like Brett Kavanaugh's career being blighted by something that happened when they were 17. Um, and the way that this has been brought up in a very late stage in the procedure, um, I know I'm going to sound very disloyal to the Me Too movement here, but it does sound as though they've settled on this particular accusation for very particular reasons. Um, and if they have to go back until uh, until Brett Kavanaugh was 17, um, then I think if they can't find anything more recent, then uh, really everybody should shut up and go home and take the vote. Let's talk about the way the battle lines have been drawn, specifically between the parties, within the parties, because a group of Republican lawmakers have come out and said that the vote should in fact be postponed. Obviously, uh, many more of their uh, colleagues in the Republican Party uh, would like it to see it go ahead on Thursday as uh, uh, planned. Um, John, who's saying what and why? Well, Republicans, as you, as you point out, this actually sort of cuts right across the parties. Uh, it's become much more a kind of, you know, is this the kind of person we want as a Supreme Court judge uh, discussion than a party political one. Although, of course, uh, there are party political ramifications. Uh, if the vote is postponed, we are mid-September already. We have the midterms coming up on 6 November. Uh, to get an investigation underway, it's most unlikely that the vote, if postponed, is going to happen before the midterms, which, of course, would present President Trump with really quite a political headache. And Mary, I wonder... One of the uh, forces uh, that uh, has been uh, said to have caused the Me Too uh, movement or triggered it is the election of Donald Trump. He's a man who has been uh, accused of sexual assault by multiple different women. Uh, these allegations came out you know, during the election campaign, not afterwards, and he was elected in spite of voters' knowledge that these allegations were out there. If Republicans do end up pushing through a nomination without giving some kind of formal airing to these accusations, at least, do you think they risk inflaming the backlash against them, against the presidency, even further? Well, they could do, but they could also be handing um, they could be handing quite a large and important card to the Democrats in the um, in the midterm elections. Um, so I think there's um, because it it is you know as you say it's not just in the framework of the Me Too movement, it's in the framework of Donald Trump and um, his presumed attitude to, to, to women. So it's seen, um, it's seen as a party political issue even beyond the business of appointing a Supreme Court judge. So, um, so yes, I mean, it goes, it, it goes way beyond. But, but, but then so did the Clarence Thomas affair and that dragged on mm. and on. Um, and it was televised 
alive and it was incredibly divisive um, and the only redeeming feature of this of, of this case at least you can say um, this is actually about um, it, it, it is about um, what may or may not have happened and, and, and the judge's character then there was the whole issue of race that came in as well um, and that made it even more toxic I think than this this one will be. You're listening to Midori House with me, Henry Rhys Sheridan, Mary Dzerzhevsky and John Everard. Coming up next, what can be done to improve elderly care in Australia and around the world? And Time magazine gets new owners. The rolling hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser & Worth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House. I'm Henry Rhys Sheridan. Still with me are Mary Dzerzhevsky and John Everard. Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is to establish a royal commission into the country's aged care sector. The announcement came almost a year after an aged care facility in South Australia was closed following evidence of horrific of horrific abuses. And a day before the airing of an investigation by television station ABC into the failings in aged care across the country. Um, Now, Australia isn't the only country struggling to cope with the issue of elderly care. It's an incredibly uh, complex uh, topic. Um, How should we be thinking about addressing it? I think we, I I remember Tony Robinson, the actor, once said that uh, future generations will look back on the way we treat our old people in this generation in the same way as we look back on the way that children were sent down mines 150 years ago. It is a social uh, obscenity. Uh, A lot of care homes, uh, perhaps fewer in the UK after various scandals of corrected things, but certainly elsewhere, are effective extermination camps, noubliettes. People are sent there and never come out very badly treated and often quite simply killed. Uh, How can this be uh, regulated? Firstly, you need proper inspection regime. You need people to go around knowing what they're looking for and to make sure that uh, care homes are held to account. You need proper funding. Uh, One of the things that the the, the, the ABC uh, programme shows is that a lot of the problems arise from the fact that there are insufficient staff, the staff are so poorly paid that they're completely demotivated, um, they, the wages are so low uh, that you can only attract desperate immigrants who can't speak English. And of course, if you're in Australia, you know, English is, is commonly spoken, uh, and it's useful to be able to speak to people in their own language. Money lies close to the heart of this. Money, compassion, uh, discipline and common sense. Mary, the forces that are causing more and more people in dozens of countries around the world to end up in elderly care facilities are complex uh, and frequently out of the control of of governments. It's, you know, about demography, an ageing population, urbanisation, cultural change, the change of values in society. You know, how should we be framing the debate around the care of elderly people, do you think? 
Well, I was actually quite surprised that this issue had arisen in Australia because Australia is actually far further down what seems to me to be quite um, a good path um, of establishing retirement communities in pleasant circumstances, purpose-built and with care built in. Um, The sort of thing that the UK, for instance, abysmally lacks. I mean, you know, a few years ago I was looking for sheltered accommodation for my elderly mother. Um, It was impossible. Anywhere near she she was living, there simply wasn't anything. However much you were prepared to pay, however much further. And what was there was so unsuitable in terms of um, facilities, in terms of basic things like non-step access, like lifts, like privacy, um, like proximity to sort of civilization in terms of um, shops, local shops and local anything. Um, when you look at the adverts for some of these, they say, well, the, the nearest bus stop is 500 metres. And when you look at a map, it's down a huge slope. Now, this is no good. Um, but I, th- I do think that one thing that, um, and I agree with here, um, that one thing that will possibly change is that my generation, which has seen, as it were, the immediate, um, the wartime generation, having such abysmal, uh, terrible facilities and being looked after so appallingly, um, that in a way we are so determined that it shouldn't be repeated, that I think we are looking for much more imaginative um, uh, solutions that may involve purpose-built housing, but will also involve maybe some sort of um, cooperatives and certainly a much higher status for the care sector. John, the announcement seems to have been uh, timed, the announcement into the Royal Commission, I I should stipulate, uh, to come out just before this ABC Four Corners documentary on the topic. Um, I think in an age where journalists are frequently being maligned, particularly by those in power, it's nice to see that investigative journalism can still move the needle. Yes, it is. I wish there were more of it, and I wish that journalists spent more time doing it. Uh, journalism is a very broad church. A lot of journalism is simply dreadful. Uh, regurgitated journalism, people just talking about what other people have said uh, in a, a rather unfortunate way. Uh, investigative journalism, of course, uh, is of vital importance for, uh, for the good of society. Uh, journalists holding those in power to account, and I think this is an excellent example of that. And that leads seamlessly into our final topic of today's show, Time magazine has new owners. The News Weekly was bought by Mark Benioff, the billionaire co-founder of the software company Salesforce, and his wife, Lynn. Um, Do uh, you think... Well, actually, no, this is my first question. Why would a tech millionaire or billionaire want an ailing media title. Mary? Well, I think it's a very interesting trend because we've seen um, Jeff Bezos take over at the Washington Post. Um, and so far as I can see, at least from a distance and from uh, fr- 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 from having friends and colleagues there, um, he's actually not made a bad job of it. And Washington Post is back on the media map in a way that, you know, when I was in Washington in the late 90s, it was an it was ailing, and it hadn't really um, balanced the um, the business of being both a local paper for Washington and being a national paper. And it seems to me, it may be part of the Trump effect, um, but there has been a bit of a renaissance in serious journalism in the US and serious press journalism. Um, so... I think that having the money um, to invest and also being um, 
quite apolitical in a way, um, as tech million, million billionaires um, have tended to be. Um, this doesn't seem to be a bad background um, for for buying into the old media. I think it's also interesting that maybe they have, on the one hand, a slight nostalgia, but also coming from the from the from the high tech sector, maybe an appreciation of what high tech doesn't do, or the all the flaws in high tech that everything is sort of instantaneous. Um, you've got the social media, everything short term. That maybe they're looking for something else, and that's good. Yes, I think Benioff is a very different person from, from, from Bezos. I mean, Benioff has uh, often spoken out on all kinds of social issues. And the remarks he made when he bought uh, Time magazine suggest that he wanted just to preserve it. He regarded it as a national icon. He was alarmed that it, there was a risk that it might be bought by people who would twist its identity in a way that it is approved of. A protective purchase, if you like. And I think we can expect him to sort of stand back and just let it get on with, with doing what it does best. If you could own one legacy media title from anywhere in the world, what would it be and what would you do with it? Mary? Oh dear, oh dear. Um... Or John, you can jump in if you've got a, a, an idea first. El Mercurio of Chile, the, the one big Spanish-speaking Latin American newspaper uh, which has lost its way and really, really needs an injection of cash and good journalists. I mean, it could do such wonderful things in Latin America. I'd jump at the opportunity. If you're hiring if and I'm if not. they're listening, <laughs> then yes. that is... And if you write in Spanish. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, you're available. Mary? I think I would, I would probably be tempted to take over Punch and try to, get, try to give it a much more contemporary and maybe even futuristic feel because I think that there is a way in which that is still a bit stuck in the past and there it, there has to be a purpose um, for looking at things sideways now given everything that's going on. Commendable choices uh, from the both of you and that brings us to the end of today's show. John Everard and Mary Dzeski, thank you very much for joining me here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Rylan, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next to then the 1900 Hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Henry Reesheridan. Goodbye. Goodbye.